What a wonderful way to transition to the message. Just hearing, hearing the gospel story sung through the lyrics there. Ask your patience for just a moment of setup here. So, my name's Jim Cluth. I've been a part of the body here at Berean since 1995, which for those of you who are young is in a whole different millennium. And uh, I'm going to be bringing the word to you this morning. And the main reason that I'm preaching is so that you can get a little bit of a break from the Hawaiian shirts. So you'll have, you'll have at least a two-week break from the Hawaiian shirts, and hopefully there will be some valuable content besides that. Um, we're just back a couple of weeks now from the Berean Fellowship Conventions, the Connect Conference, Connect 2020, and one of the things that we did way at the end of the Connect Conference is we handed out a proposed constitution and bylaws for the Berean Fellowship of Churches. I do have one extra one of those with me this morning, so if, if you're curious to see, uh, we handed it out at the end of July, and there will be a commenting and revision period until I think early next February, and then uh, it'll be the revised will be handed out at a leaders' conference in February, and then the whole fellowship will vote to adopt or not to adopt next July. So you can be praying for that process. Um, constitutions are documents that help people do ministry together. And you heard Joel talking a minute or two ago about unity and how times like this can make unity a tricky thing. And so... Uh, we believe that the constitution that we're putting forward with the revisions uh, will certainly be a unifying force for going forward. So, this morning, I want to talk about story. Who doesn't love a good story? As human beings, we are wired to enjoy them. And in fact, if we survive 2020, can you imagine the fun that we're going to have telling stories to our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren about what it was like? And and then they told us that we had to wear a mask to go into the bank, not take the mask off before we go in. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. You really can't. Uh, I know when I was a little boy, I loved hearing stories that my dad would tell about growing up on the northern prairies of South Dakota. He grew up literally in the middle of nowhere. The nearest town was Ridgeview. They had a population of 25. I believe that included cattle. Um, And he would tell stories to me as a city kid, um, which was just fascinating because he had his own farm dog. He had his own horse. They got to drive tractors. They had guns to shoot. There was a lake really close, and he and his sister would go out and row on the lake like every afternoon. And it just sounded like heaven. Um, but <laughs> I wanted to tell you one of the crazier things that uh, that he tried. I think he was about ten when this happened, and his dad and a friend of his dad's were planning on going to town, and he said, "Can I go with you?" And they said, no, you got to stay here on the ranch. 
Well, he didn't like that answer, and so he waited until they'd gotten into the truck. And the trucks at that time had running boards on the sides that were about this wide. And so once both of the men got in the truck, he lay down on the running board, and then he grabbed onto the side of it, and they didn't notice him at all, and they pulled out and headed for town. And things were going really well until his dad made a left-hand turn at a pretty good speed and rolled my dad off the side into the ditch. (laughs) And his friend said, did you hear something? And Gottlieb said, no, I didn't hear anything. And they just kept heading for town. (laughs) At least that's the way I remember the story being told. Um, They didn't find out about that until much, much later. And I think maybe children were more adventurous in those days. So we humans love stories because that's part of how God's made us. And he's made us that way because he is telling one grand, critically important story through his word and through the creation. And every other story is either an accurate reflection or a poor reflection of the story that God's telling. And I would like to argue this morning that one of our key responsibilities as Christians, as gospel people, is to thoroughly know and deeply love the big story that God is telling. Our world is full of competing stories, competing narratives that are trying to capture your heart and your mind for their purposes. But it's only when we know God's story that we are able to pull off what Paul commanded in Romans 12, 1 and 2. That's only then that we're able to offer ourselves as living sacrifices to test and to approve what God's good and pleasing and perfect will is. So this morning, I'm going to tell God's big story. Not because you don't know it or you've never heard it, but because you and I need to re-experience it again and again and be reformed by it again and again. The story begins with God, the holy, all-powerful, majestic being who exists beyond time and space and chose to create. He does this not because he is lonely or needy. In fact, there's a James Weldon Johnson poem uh, that begins, and God stepped out on space, and he looked around, and he said, I'm lonely. I'll make me a world. As far as the eye of God could see, darkness covered everything, blacker than a hundred midnights down in a cypress swamp. Then God smiled, and the light broke, and the darkness rolled up one side, and the light stood shining on the other, and God said, that's good. Now, it's a fantastic poem, and you should read the rest of it, but the theology at the beginning is absolutely terrible, okay? God is the only being in the entire universe who is self-existent. He doesn't need anybody. He's not feeling unfulfilled. He has perfect fellowship within the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so he does not create out of his need, but out of the overflow of the goodness of who he is. And the scriptures merely assume him. Turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, 
God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it. And it was so. God called the expanse sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And the account goes on in similar fashion. If you ever doubt that creation is good that life is good, that maleness and femaleness are good, then let Genesis 1 and 2 sink into your soul. An acorn, the songs of birds, the wonder of holding a new baby in your arms, the breathtaking joy of standing on high ground and seeing around you for miles and miles in every direction. All of these things are part of the good creation of an indescribably good God. God spoke, and it came to be. Genesis 2.25 ends the creation account by saying that the man and his wife were both naked and that they felt no shame. By Genesis 3, the story has taken a huge turn, and not for the better. Starting in Genesis 3.1, Adam and Eve fail to obey God and lose the perfection, the paradise that is pre-fall. They succumb to Satan's temptations that God is holding out on them, that they are missing out because they don't have this knowledge of good and evil thing. Eve eats the fruit while Adam stands there and lets it happen and then joins in. Suddenly, death enters God's magnificent vibrant creation. Is the creation still good? Absolutely. If it were not, God would not have allowed it to continue. But it is not perfect. It is damaged. Animals die. Humans, made in the image of God, die. Fellowship with God is broken. Fellowship with each other is broken. And cruelty enters the world. Humans feel the effects of sin, misery, hurt, fear, shame, and anger. There is nothing they can do to fix it. Nothing. In the middle of the curse, the different consequences that God is explaining to the players here, he gives a promise, a promise that he will repair the damage that has been done. A promise that someone will save them from the mess. It's Genesis 3.15 where God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. From that moment on, the promise is passed down from generation to generation of folks who are living in the agony of sin. The promise continues through the flood. It continues past the Tower of Babel. 
And God moves his rescue mission forward when he calls Abraham the man of faith. Listen to Abraham's call from Genesis 12, verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. What's so special about Abraham? Nothing, as far as I can tell. God simply chose him to receive his blessing and to found a nation that was supposed to declare and share God's glory with the rest of the nations. And so Abraham's faith leads to the birth of Isaac. And Isaac leads to Jacob. And Jacob leads to 12 sons. That includes Joseph, who was sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt. And then, of course, you know the story that Joseph becomes second in command in all Egypt and rescues his family from starvation because he's leader of the food distribution program. By the time Jacob's family arrives in Egypt, they number about 70 in all. A baby nation has been born. While in Egypt, the baby nation grows, but also becomes enslaved to the Egyptians. After 400 years, God raises up a leader and directs him to lead those people out of slavery and into a land that he has prepared for them. Well, that's the story of Moses and the Exodus. As they were journeying through the wilderness at Mount Sinai, God gave them instructions of how to relate to him and how to relate to each other. We call those the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments and the rest of the moral law, the sacrifices and the temple worship, were never intended to be a ladder or something by which we could climb back to God. You can imagine the person, right? Oh, I see. I keep the Sabbath. I don't covet. I don't commit adultery. I don't murder anybody. And now I'm righteous. No. The, the moral law actually has numerous functions, but a key one is to help God's people throughout history to recognize the sin that exists inside of them. The moral law shows us that we've not reached God's righteous standard. It helps us come to the Romans 3 conclusion. This is Romans 3, starting at verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. No one is righteous. No, not one. The moral law helps us stand before God and declare that unless someone rescues us, we are in terrible trouble. When prophets and spiritual leaders confronted them, the nation of Israel promised over and over that they would obey and follow God. But they didn't succeed very often. 
And so the dark, dangerous period of the judges led to the united monarchy, think Saul, David, and Solomon, and then to the divided kingdom, and eventually to Judah's exile in Babylon, and then eventual return. But God continued to speak to Israel and continued to remind them that he was sending someone, someone who would represent him in exactly the right ways. Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9, is an obvious example of this kind of prophecy. If you'd like to turn there, please feel free to join me. Isaiah 42, verse 1, a messianic prophecy. Here is my servant whom I uphold. My chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, which might be my favorite verse in the entire Bible. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his law, the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says, he who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and all that comes out of it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open the eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, to release from the darkness, from the dungeon, sorry, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. See, the former things have taken place, and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. Passages like that are filled with hope for hopeless people in a hopeless nation. God is declaring again and again that he has the answer, and in fact, that he is the answer. God continues to speak and encourage and correct his people through the canon of the Old Testament. And then to our knowledge, he is silent. He waits 400 years until he speaks again, as the writer of Hebrews explains. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. That's Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. The big reveal, the great moment in history, happened not in the halls of power, but in a tiny village called Bethlehem. Farm animals and two probably very scared young people witnessed the birth of the only person who was fully God and fully man in one person. As God, he had the power to live a sinless life, the power to undo what Adam and Eve and all the rest of us had been doing. As man, 
He had the ability to represent us perfectly in his sinless life and his sacrificial death. Again, the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus, our high priest, meets our needs. He's been tested, tried, and tempted in every way, in the same ways that we are, yet he was without sin. I'd like to zero in on the big facts of the gospel for just a moment here. The good news that Jesus Christ came to this messed up earth for you and for me. When Paul was writing his first letter to the Corinthians, he stopped off near the end of the epistle to remind his readers of these big facts. And it's kind of amazing, really. He spends 14 chapters talking about things that we would probably consider very spiritual and then others that we would consider very practical. And then he abruptly stops and says, Now, brothers, I want to remind you. Well, I'll read it to you in his words. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. This is 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Okay, so this next stuff that he's going to say, this is the stuff of the first importance. What can we not lose? Okay, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living around 60 AD, 50-something, 60 AD, uh, when he's writing this letter, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormal born. Paul wants them to know that this is the foundation of everything. He calls it of first importance, the sine qua non. That's Latin for without this, nothing. Right? Uh, let's look at it proposition by proposition. First proposition, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. This is the point of the whole scripture. God's very son took the punishment that we deserved and gave us the true life that we needed. He died for our sins. It's so easy to say that sentence, Jesus died for our sins, but it's a lot more painful to imagine Jesus hanging in agony on the cross because of things that you and I and the rest of the world has done. If we have forgotten the weight of sin, the crucifixion of Christ brings it home. Notice also that it says he died according to the scriptures. So Jesus' death is not something that the Jews or the Romans came up with on the spur of the moment. No. This is an event that had been planned from eternity past. God knew that he would glorify himself and his son and rescue his children through the cross, and he prophesied it numerous times before it happened. Proposition number two, that he was buried. 
on the surface, this seems like a detail. But unless Jesus actually died, he did not atone for the sins of humankind. Except in rare and horrific instances, like in the mind of Edgar Allan Poe, you do not bury people alive. Paul is emphasizing that Jesus really physically died and that it was extremely important that he did. It completed the payment for sin. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Proposition number three, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This is the climax of the whole story. This is the point of the whole story. The God-man who dies for sins that he didn't commit doesn't stay dead. He overcomes death through the power of his indestructible life. He wins the battle over sin, over death, and over the power of the devil. And again, this is not a surprise to anyone who had read the Scriptures carefully and with faith. God very clearly stated that he would not abandon his Holy One to the grave. Furthermore, Jesus prophesied numerous times that he would be put to death by the religious leaders, but raised again to life on the third day. Paul develops the theology of the resurrection later in this chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. But it is enough to say here that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the central, pivotal event of human history. Without it, we are lost. Proposition number four, that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. This point is basically evidence. Paul are you saying that Jesus really rose from the dead? Yeah, that's exactly what Paul is saying. And there are plenty of people that saw him and interacted with him after he was crucified and after he was buried. And so um, this makes an important point. Paul goes on to enumerate the different disciples and apostles who saw the resurrected Christ, and then he makes it personal. He appeared to me as to one abnormally born. If you believe these propositions, then you are a part of God's family, the church. You are numbered among the saints, and you get to be a participant in God's work of saving people by bringing them to faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says that God is in the business of reconciling people to himself, not counting people's sins against them. And he begs them, be reconciled to God. God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you believe these propositions, you have faith in Christ, and you get to enjoy being a member of God's forever family. He brought us into this family by adopting us as his sons and daughters. Galatians 4, 4, and 5 says it succinctly. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, 
born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. We call this forever family the invisible church, or the true church. People throughout history and geography who have truly been born again and have faith in Jesus. It's the church's job to represent Jesus here on earth, to tell what he said, and to disciple people who will disciple others. It is our job to carry out the Great Commission as found in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. One day, Christ will return for his church. And when he returns, we will be filled with a joy so deep and inexpressible that everything that came previously will seem shallow and empty by comparison. And God will restore all things in a new heaven and a new earth where he will dwell with us, his redeemed people. Now you may wonder why I spent today's sermon telling you the basic story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Well, it's simply this. If you're like me, you've spent a lot of time over the past five months either alone or with immediate family members. And when we're spending time with people that we're always with, we don't necessarily say the things that are true that we all agree on. And when you don't say it out loud, it becomes fuzzy and indistinct in your mind. And so I'm hoping that as I talked through this biblical framework this morning, the Holy Spirit dusted off these truths in your mind and heart and made you living a little bit more in sync with his story. See, these days, everyone has a narrative, but ours is the meta-narrative. It is the story of the only God who loves and rescues his people. It is as true today as it has ever been, and it will be true long after all the competing stories have passed away. Would you pray with me? God, I'm grateful to have had the privilege of speaking your word this morning, uh, to read from the scriptures that have been passed down to us through the ages. And we thank you that you are telling a great story, a story that began before the creation of the world, and culminates in you dwelling with us, your redeemed people. So God, help us to see what each of our place is in the story, uh, and to live out that calling in the power of your Spirit. Help us to know that when we go through strange times like these, you have not abandoned us, you have not forsaken us, Uh, But instead, you're calling us to walk ever closer with you, our King of Kings. So, God, please empower your church. Give us 
joy and peace for our journey and uh, strengthen us for the week ahead as we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand and receive?